0: Don't call it a combback I'll have hair for years.
1: Wake up in the morning feeling like P D. Hey, my glasses on out the door. I'm gonna hit this city Let's before go. I leave. Brush my teeth with a bottle of jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm talking
0: Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas Studios, this is the Press Box bitch-ass white boy. Tyler Bischoff.
1: It was reported that the Cleveland Indians have decided to remove the term Indian from their name. And Adam Candy. Yet we're cool calling the only black people in Utah the Jazz. On ESPN Las Vegas. Ed Graney is on a plane somewhere returning to Las Vegas after game five in Colorado. So Adam Candy is here today and the Golden Knights. They've won three straights against the mighty Colorado Avalanche. The first bite. Did Mark Stone earn his C? Earn the captain's jersey. Adam, how are you this morning? What do we do with Mark Stone? He finally scored. And uh, quite a time.
0: It seems like maybe he's earned your respect at the very least.
1: Well, okay. Mark Stone and the second line or the first line, excuse me deserves all the credit for the last three games or the last two games. I should say before last night in terms of shutting down Nathan McKinnon. like the main reason the golden Knights. Oh yes. We love the dogs. We love the dogs. What's happening there, Adam?
0: Well, I believe that there's a, uh, there's a major threat going on outside my home, (laughs) at least according to my dog. But, uh,
1: (laughs) so, the The second line or guys, keep on the second line. The first line in Mark stone deserve all the credit for shutting down at the beginning. And it's the biggest reason why the golden Knights w- were back in this series. It's the biggest reason the series was tied. And Mark stone is, we know he's terrific defensively. He's a finalist for the Selke award. He might end up winning that, but Mark stone is here to produce defensively and offensively. And he hadn't scored a goal in this series. He hadn't scored a goal in six playoff games until last night. And until overtime, he scores the game winner and Honestly, the most incredible part of that goal, Mark Stone won a race. Like he's not fast. Like the thing that separates Mark Stone from being in that Nathan McKinnon, Connor McDavid tier is speed. He's much slower than those guys. And for him to win a race, create a breakaway for himself is phenomenal. And then actually finish it off with a goal. That's the goal when we if if the Golden Knights end up winning the Stanley Cup. That's going to be one of the goals you look back on and say that's one of the biggest moments of the season. That's one of the biggest moments in Golden Knights history. Well, no,
0: I think you can break this entire game out and put it on that tier. And I think you're basically going to go and you're going to look at that and you're going to look at the Marcheseau goal earlier on that got them back into the series and say, these are the reasons that the Golden Knights had opportunities because I don't think it's overstating it at all to say that last night, the third period and overtime might be the most important in the history of this franchise especially if they finish off this series Uh, they played the kind of game that other teams do to them right they played the kind of game in which the other team dominates puck possession the other team dominates chances and yet the golden knights figure out a way to win the game That's what's been done to them consistently for the last two playoffs at the very least. And yet here we are with them figuring out a way to win one of those games. And yeah, I think a lot of things uh, separate Mark Stone from you know, the McDavid tier, right? first of all, they're just different kind of players, right? I mean, Mark Stone gets by on strength and by making smart passes. Where I mean, those guys are game breakers. That's exactly what they are, is individual skill that is so far above and beyond that nobody can defend them. Well, you know, Mark Stone's not that guy, but that goal, that moment is easily up there in the pantheon of the three plus years of this franchise so
1: what's fascinating about mark stone is he's a perfect example last night of what you were saying about the golden knights they got out shot they got out chance like colorado was better last night they were the better hockey team over the course of that game but the avalanche won and it's especially true for mark stone his line their coursey last night when they played against Landeskog because jared bednar Colorado's coach made a bunch of changes, dropped Gabriel Landeskog down to the second line. He line matched for like the entire game. So that Nathan McKinnon was never on the ice with Mark stone. And because of that, Jared Bednar has had his second line going up against Mark stone. And for the majority of the game, the avalanche dominated that matchup like Landeskog versus stone. The Corsi for golden Knights was 32%. The expected goals was 23% when those two were on the ice together dominated. But That was the matchup when Mark Stone scored the game-winning goal. And it's the perfect example of, hey, you didn't play well. You weren't the better team, but you scored the goal. You got the one opportunity and finished it off there. Like, I thought Jared Bednar and Colorado did well with their adjustments. Like, I thought they did a very good job after two games of sort of floundering around and not doing anything differently. I thought they did really well and probably, like, they deserved to win that game the same way the Golden Knights deserved to win game two. But... Ultimately, you get the one goal because the other team couldn't finish it off. The other team couldn't score enough goals despite their dominance. And that is a the best example of that is Mark Stone and what his line did last night.
0: Well, on Jared Bednar and the changes made by the Avalanche, that was brilliant. Uh, not just the move of getting McKinnon free, but also Jared Bednar made sure that his team did not come out and play the same game. They stopped trying to beat the Golden Knights with speed. Because the Golden Knights had reverted into sort of a 90s hockey, clog up the neutral zone, and you can't go anywhere against them. And the the, the, Avalanche were frustrated, hugely frustrated. They couldn't use the best skills that they have. And what they did last night was there was a lot more chip and chase. There was a lot more just try to get it in the zone and throw something at Marc-Andre Fleury. And speaking of throw something at Marc-Andre Fleury, uh, that first goal by Brandon Saad is maybe the softest goal of Marc-Andre Fleury's career. Not that I've looked back on all of them, but it would be hard to find one. I think that you would go to Marc-Andre Fleury and say, should you have stopped it more than you should have <laughs> stopped that one? And yet at the same time, he was the whole reason they got into that situation. And Tyler, he was the whole reason they got out of that situation too. Because the way the Avalanche dominated chances, especially through the first two periods, they could have been up three or four to nothing quite easily, and there would have been no chance for the Golden Knights to blitz them in the first five minutes of the third like they did.
1: Okay, so you think the way the Avalanche played, they could have scored four goals and been yeah. up four to nothing in the third? Because, Absolutely, yeah. Because the way I viewed the way the, the Colorado played was I feel like they took away their ability to blow teams out. Because when you play, you know, the more dump and chase style, it's more conservative when you're shooting more rather than trying to create the perfect chance, the perfect goal, you're lessening your opportunities to score when you're the Colorado Avalanche. Like we saw game one when they scored seven times, they skated around the Golden Knights. They dominated that game with their speed when you're dumping it in and when you're not carrying it into the zone. To me, that lessens the chance. And it's like what we've seen from the Golden Knights over the years is, okay, Yes, you have more shots. Yes, you have more chances, but they're more low percentage chances. They're more, Hey, we've got to beat a packed in defensive team in their own zone with a shot from the point. And that sort of, to me, it lowers the margin for error for a team like Colorado where, okay, you still probably should have won that game. You still probably should have scored a couple more goals, but it makes it much harder to actually like control a game and have a multi-goal lead. I think what
0: we've seen throughout the course of this series, Tyler, is that game one is the game we have to throw out. Game one is the aberration, and not because of the score, because it's easy for any team to say, you know what, we came into that game, we just didn't have our legs and use it as an excuse. But the Golden Knights have backed that up four straight games. They've come out and they've shown that when these two teams both play close to their peak, we're going to get a fantastic brand of hockey. Whatever brand of hockey it is, whether it's dump and chase or whether it's try to fly up and down the ice and you know connect passes through the neutral zone, these teams are going to give us great hockey. And that first game goes to show the Golden Knights didn't have their legs. And so, to your point, Colorado can't play that speed game if the Golden Knights are at full speed. So that, to me, is the real difference here. And let's not lose sight of the overall picture as we talk about you know, the adjustments and, you know, the sort of chess match of all of this. The Golden Knights have won three consecutive games against this Colorado Avalanche team that everyone looked at and said was a prohibitive favorite to win the Stanley Cup, and rightly so for the way they played through the second half of the season. And the Golden Knights are, are are coming home where they will have the ability to line match and the ability to close out this series. And I don't know about you, Tyler, but it feels to me like they better do it on Thursday. They better close this thing out when they have the opportunity, because I would not want to see what it looks like to have to go back to Colorado with the way that that last game was played last night. Because if Colorado plays that game again in game seven, if they're so fortunate as to get there, they're probably going to win it.
1: All right. Terrible sports radio coming because I don't have an actual take on this. It's more of just me being perplexed. I don't feel like the line matching should be that big of a difference in this game, but like all of the evidence points to that's the most important part of this series.
0: It has thus far, and it has because if you take game one out of the equation, and of course, you know, it's a seven game series, hard to take game one completely out of the equation. But if you just remove that, then the McKinnon line, has not been what you need the McKinnon line to be. If you're Jared Bednar, if you're the Colorado Avalanche, the McKinnon line has not had the effectiveness outside of game one. And the Golden Knights top line, despite the Corsi troubles of last night, when you factor in how Max Pacioretty came back in Las Vegas and played for the Golden Knights, then you say, especially in games three and four, They got the best of it. Well, why did they get the best of it in games three and four? Well, Those are the games where they were at home and they had the ability to match lines. So I do think when you take two teams as talented as these who have the ability to play different styles, it really can come down to matchups. And in a game like last night, it can come down to which line gets to play against which line in specific.
1: Did you uh, catch last night when Pete DeBoer said he didn't care about line matching?
0: Sure, Pete. <laughs> I totally agree. That's why you start your fourth line every game, right?
1: <laughs> he changed too. This is the one time he's changed, and I he's, know he's telling us he doesn't care, and it's the first time ever where he's like, "Nah, I don't need to start the fourth line anymore. I need to actually start my good players against their good players because anytime McKinnon's on the ice against somebody not named Mark Stone, it could be a disaster for him. I just, it's it's just strange to me that that can be that can be the biggest storyline is simply okay. Whoever is at home gets to determine who Nathan McKinnon plays against. And that determines who plays well over the course of an entire 60 minutes. Like I, I, it's right. Like I have nothing to argue against that being what's happened in this series. It just, to me seems like way too simplistic and way too like, no, that can't be the only reason why, but it, it kind of is like, we're sitting here going to a game six and it's like, yeah, why are the golden eyes in as well? They only played Mark Stone against Nathan McKinnon in two games, and they won both of those. It's just, I don't know. It's bizarre to me that it's, it's like that simplified, and that can be the single thing that determines who wins the series.
0: You are a guy who breaks down basketball as much as any sport, and it's really no different, is yeah. it? Yeah. It's really no different in the end that if Joel Embiid is out there against a team of six-footers, it is a lot different than if Joel Embiid has size against him. So, I mean, you can you can play this out any different way you want. But, The long and short of it for me is that the Golden Knights to me, again, you have to finish the job, but that game last night I think is the game you look back on somewhere in the history of this franchise and say, that's the one we've been waiting for them to win for the better part of three years. That particular game, that game, we spend so much time, you and I specifically, we spend so much time saying, Why did the Golden Knights dominate all the analytics? Why do they then not finish chances? And why do we then get on the radio and rant about the Golden Knights can't win the big one? I mean, we've had uh, our boy Jay Fresh Hockey on the show before. He did a whole breakdown of this yesterday. He wrote up an entire article about why for the last two years have the Golden Knights been a Corsi darling who just can't go anywhere and last night They broke the mold. They finally did it. Now, can they do it again? That's what we're about to find out. But they finally broke the mold of, you know what? We're not going to dominate chances. And we are going to counterpunch. And we did just enough to win.
1: All right. Coming up next, who is ready for the Jazz to be in the Western Conference Finals playing against the Phoenix Suns?
2: Me. Me here's shake three ball from the hash marks up and good oh yeah shake milton with a triple he's got two threes here in the late stages and he nailed one over two atlanta defenders
1: shake milton a hero so the western conference is as wide open as it's been in a very long time which means we are sitting here in the second round with the jazz and the suns who had the two best records in the west both leading their series now 1-0. And we could have Jazz Suns in the Western Conference Finals. No Kawhi Leonard, no LeBron James, no Steph Curry. Uh, Adam, I'm ready for it. I have been somebody for the last like decade that I have very much enjoyed LeBron James. I, I like watching LeBron play. Normally, i cheer for LeBron to at least get to the finals. Because it's interesting when LeBron James is in the finals. But I'm on board. I am ready for Donovan Mitchell, Devin Booker, Jazz and Suns in the Western Conference Finals. I can
0: sign up for it for one reason, and it's that LeBron James and Anthony Davis didn't get there because of injury, and Steph Curry didn't get there because of Klay Thompson's injury, right? We look at these two teams and we say, all right, if you have health on both of those teams, one of them at the least is probably at this stage right now, and so because of that, because it doesn't make me accept the mortality of either of these two players and the fact that eventually all these good things end, then sure, sign me up for a year of Suns Jazz where they both get to play at this stage and they both get to get the experience and maybe become a legitimate contender to the throne when you do throw a healthy LeBron James and Anthony Davis and a Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Draymond Green trio back out there for the Warriors.
1: I think you and I are in the same boat where I'm, I'm kind of dreading when LeBron James is actually retired. Like, I don't want LeBron James' career to end
0: oh, God, no, 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 no. This league's not ready for it. I mean, I'm not ready for it, period, but I'm I'm absolutely sure that this league is not prepared for what comes next after that because there's... I, look, I know there are people out there who love some of the stars of the next generation. I know people who say that Luka Doncic is going to be the best player of all time, but, you know, I, I need to see a lot more, and I'm sure Adam Silver needs to see a lot more before he's comfortable with LeBron James walking away.
1: But then we get Bronny! How many more years until Bronny's in the NBA? Can't be yeah. 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 He's going to make it. That's, that's what LeBron's waiting for. That's at least how many years we have until LeBron retires, right?
0: I think we're fair on that one, yeah. And actually, a, a year like this year, I think a year like this year guarantees that you get a little more LeBron James because he's not going out like that, right? And when he did his postgame interview after the loss to the Suns, he basically said, yeah, we got to get Anthony Davis healthy. Big big fella's got to be healthy because, of course, he had another injury-marred season. And so now, what do we get? What do we get to watch right now? We get to watch the Tyler Bischoff Invitational between the Utah Jazz and the Los Angeles Clippers. In which 52% of the field goal attempts last night were three-point shots.
1: It's great. It's phenomenal. Jordan
0: Clarkson alone (laughs) has to be on your all-time team. A guy who took 18 shots and 14 of them were from three and he came off the bench to do it. I know that's why he's six man of the year. Don't get me wrong, but it's just highly entertaining to watch this Utah Jazz team put up 53s in the game.
1: I enjoyed that. I think two different times in that game. The end of quarter offense was for Jordan Clarkson to take a step back three like he was James Harden or something like that. Like I just thoroughly enjoyed. Oh, They're just going to let Clarkson do that. Oh, okay. That's what he's going to do. I just, it's yeah. yeah, Take a step back. I I need to
0: send a a quick message out to, I know who is a regular press box listener, uh, Mitch Kupchak, former uh, GM of the Lakers, who when I was doing a broadcast at summer league and said of Jordan Clarkson, quote, he's never shy about taking a shot, (laughs) shot a look over at me from, from the front row. I'm on the broadcast. He's looking at me. Like I just said something sacrosanct against him. Well, Mitch, he'll shoot from anywhere.
1: <laughs> the So what's fascinating about the jazz in terms of like the Tyler Bischoff invitational is they gave an extension to a guy that Tyler Bischoff would probably never give a massive extension to. And that's Rudy Gobert because Rudy Gobert is not what modern basketball is about. But they've made it work because they shoot so many threes, because they've got so many good shooters. They're able to space the floor like they've made it work despite having one guy on the floor who is not a floor spacer who kind of goes against that in Rudy Gobert. And it's phenomenal. And listen, what we saw from Rudy Gobert just on the last possession of the game last night was phenomenal. Now, he had the benefit of knowing they had to shoot a three, but for him to basically bite on a pump fake from Marcus Morris and then able to recover and still block the three that Marcus Morris was trying to shoot from the corner, unbelievable perimeter defense by Rudy Gobert. Oh, uh, without a question. I mean...
0: Rudy Gobert caught up to Marcus Morris like COVID caught up to Rudy Gobert. Like it was very very <laughs> impressive how quick the recovery was and how the turnaround allowed Rudy Gobert to win that game for them. And oh by the way, I really enjoyed uh Ty Lu's dribble handoff series that ended with Marcus Morris taking a three in the corner like that cannot be the what they drew up in left. the huddle
1: with the timeout left they could have called a timeout and advanced the ball but instead for some reason Rondo's on the court and when Rondo has the ball and you're down by three the other team doesn't have to guard him and yeah it worked out pretty well for him didn't it
0: my god and by the way <laughs> the only reason that that ended up with Marcus Morris by the way if we're being fair is that Kawhi Leonard should have been called for an offensive foul for a moving screen. Like, he actually just ran through the defender after he handed it off. They're never calling it at that point of the game, but he had fallen down. Like, he set such an illegal screen that he fell down, too. <laughs> and so now he gets the ball back basically on the sideline with the defender in his face and like four seconds left. And he's like, oh, oh, I can't do anything about that. And we end up with
1: what we did. What are you saying, resident referee Adam Candy, that referees messed something up in the final minute?
0: I'm saying that if referees had called an illegal screen on Kawhi Leonard 25 feet from the basket on the final possession of that game, they probably would not work another playoff game this year.
1: Uh, All right. So what are we doing with Paul George? Like he obviously has the reputation last night. He was four of 17 from the floor. Um, Like, is he like the worst second star that any superstar could have teamed up with a couple years ago?
0: He hasn't done a whole lot to dispel that, has he? I and mean, he goes 4-17 in this game, and it's just not enough. I mean, nine of the points came from the free throw line as well. He really struggled from the field. And granted, the Jazz team defense was outstanding in the second half overall. I mean, that was one of the best Quinn Snyder team performances that I've ever seen. But Paul George goes for 20, and Kawhi Leonard goes for 23. So is he the worst second star? I don't know, but here's the thing about the way these two are set up. Paul George can go for 20 if Kawhi goes for 40, but Paul George can't go for 20 if Kawhi Leonard goes for 23, and Kawhi Leonard can't go for 40 every night, and you traded away the one reliable score that you had beyond those guys in Lou Williams to bring in the corpse of playoff Rondo. So... (laughs) But hey, congratulations! You got five points, six assists, and five rebounds in twenty-eight minutes out of it last night. So clearly, that worked out for you. Um, the only reason they're in the game is because Ty Lue looked to the end of his bench and was like, "Hold on a second, is that Luke Kennard?" and then Luke Kennard goes seven of nine from the field like something that you would never imagine happening in 2021 otherwise the Clippers are getting waxed in this game yeah
1: like Luke Kennard yeah it's bizarre that Luke Kennard is out here as an important player in a playoff game for listen we're going to talk to Jonathan Von Tobel here in a minute I'm going to ask him I don't know if he still thinks the Clippers are the favorites to come out of the West but Luke Kennard is the one trying to save who could have been the favorites to come out of the West in the LA Clippers. So it's, it's bizarre, but give me jazz Suns, I'm ready for it. I, like you said, next year, I might not want jazz Suns after seeing it this year, but I'm okay. I'm, I'm ready for it now. I'm ready for, for Devin Booker and Donovan Mitchell. I'm, I'm ready for these two teams to give us a Western conference finals and get swept by the nets in the cut and the NBA finals, but we'll enjoy the Western conference finals while they're here. Coming up next, Jonathan Von Tobel joins the show now, back to Cofield and Company on
3: ESPN 1100, 100.9 FM.
0: And off the turnover, a, another technical is called on Chris Paul. And it may have been Lauren Holkamp calling the tee. Yes, it was. Well, welcome to prime time, Lauren. She's not afraid of the big moment, and I like it. Who won the world? Girls, girls.
1: Who won the world?
2: Garrett, what was that? Who won the that would be a
1: rejoin that our current guest made in 2015. Jonathan Von Toble is here. How are you?
3: I'm good. I think that was the the Chris Paul when he got in the kerfuffle with the uh, uh, the, the uh, female uh, official right a couple of years ago, and it, that was like a big deal. And, and man, what genius production right there, huh?
1: Pretty good. Nobody else has been able to top it since since that time. Like it's probably sure, the best true. rejoin in in ESPN Las Vegas history. So, all right, important question. Who's winning the Western Conference this year? Uh,
3: so I read this is a great timing because I, I wrote a great and wonderful piece about this for our website up at com right before game one of the series between the Utah Jazz and the Los Angeles Clippers, and it is the Los Angeles Clippers. Uh, look, I, I, I was really confident in this team, Tyler, even before before the series started. They were my pick against Dallas, I should say. They were my pick to win the Western Conference. When they were down 2 nothing. it was fine. right? When they're down 3-2, you have confidence that they're going to be able to pull it out. And I still do. You know, yesterday was a pretty bad spot coming off of a game seven and then going on the road to altitude to take on Utah. But they, they check all the boxes for me. A dominant wing player and defender in Kawhi Leonard. The ancillary pieces that shoot extremely well, that are switchable and can play solid defense, shoot the ball extremely well. And I get it. Ty Lue is not the most liked coach in the world. But he did make adjustments and actually coached that team at the end of that Dallas series to a victory, and, and I think he's got enough to, to get this done. So it is the Los Angeles Clippers, fresh off of a game one loss to the Utah Jazz.
0: <laughs> John, so when you look at those secondary pieces, you're comfortable with the idea that someone from that group will step up on any given night? Like Reggie Jackson, I think is the first guy you look at, but then you know it's it's the mothballed Luke Kennard who comes out of the uh, woodwork last right. night.
3: Yeah, and look, and I think that that ties into Ty Lue's ability to improve at him, right? As, as a head coach, you know you have to be able to make adjustments when, when things aren't working. Luke Kennard worked against Dallas; he was really solid. Dallas does not have multiple like right ball dominant guys that can beat you off of the dribble and exploit you every time you get switched on to a guy. It's Luka Doncic and mainly nobody else. Like Tim Hardaway, maybe every once in a while can do that, uh, but those are more like spot up and shoot guys. When you're talking about Utah. Uh, now, you have a couple of guys that can do that too, especially if Mike Conley's going to come back. But regardless, like yesterday, you know, they're switching really easily. Every time they ran Kawhi's guy, Kawhi guy over, Kawhi's guy, yeah, well, you know, you got that. But no, he doesn't. Like, there's a reason why Donovan Mitchell is destroying this guy. But you're right. Like, look, Randy Jackson was in foul trouble and fouled out really early yesterday. He's a 40% three point shooter. Marcus Morris is, I think, a 38% three-point shooter. He shot 40% this series against Dallas, and he was one for nine yesterday from the floor. He had a really bad shooting night. Like, There's a lot, of, and we haven't even mentioned Paul George, who, again, like, I want him to succeed so bad, and yet he's missing <laughs> open corner shots and going 4-17 from the floor, but he also had a relatively solid series against the Dallas Mavericks. He was, like, what, 28-10-4 and, and four in terms of his stat line in that one. So, yes, I, I believe in the pieces altogether, like, they, you don't need any one guy. As long as one of them steps up, which you saw throughout the last five games, of the series against Dallas, I do think that they have enough to win this conference.
1: But do you believe in Rondo? No, God, I don't. <laughs> like I so yesterday, I, like,
3: what was driving me nuts yesterday was he's in there. Instead of Terrence Mann, who is a phenomenal young player who has a lot, a lot of length, he has switchability, he can attack off the bounce. But like, Rondo would run a pick and roll and get all the space in the world, and, like, dribble to the elbow, and it's like, nah, let's just dribble it back out. Like, what are we doing? He he offers nothing on the offensive end of the floor. He's not a shooter. I don't care how great he was in the bubble. Everybody was great as a shooter in the bubble. So I think that's one of the adjustments we're going to see, right? Pat Bev got the bench, got the hook in the series against Dallas. It's Rajon Rondo's turn. It's time to turn this over to Terrence Mann. He's not a perfect player, but he offers so much more than both Patrick Beverly and um, Rajon Rondo that I think you got to make the adjustment here. I, I, I thought it was insane watching what Rondo was doing yesterday. I don't want the ball in, the, in his hands in the fourth quarter unless he's passing it to Kawhi the second he touched it.
0: So over on the other side in the East, John, do you think Mike Budenholzer could somehow get the Lane Kiffin treatment in his own arena? Do you think that they could, might just ditch him directly after the series and say, thanks, it's been great, we're not doing this anymore?
3: I want I want him to get the Florida Panthers Gerard Gallant treatment. I want him after <laughs> after Game Three if they lose to just be like, all right, bro, like just get in the taxi, just get out of here. Like we don't want you anymore. And yes, he doesn't go to the airport, but still, just a picture of Mike holder in a taxi going back home would be <laughs> hilarious. They don't even let him. They don't even let him take his car out of the arena. They're just like, just get out. All right, well we'll give it to you. We'll it to you. Uh, but regardless, like you know, you're like look. Uh, Bud has a lot of questions to answer here, right? Like, it's funny. Like, you know, I I feel like in the general sense, we view like a guy like Ty Lue and Mike Bootholes are the same. I I think Bud's been lost here in the postseason for a really long time now. And, Adam, you know, I've talked to you about this before, and I've you know, i only been on the – had the honor of being on the press box only once or twice, so I don't know if I brought this up the last time I was with you guys, but the thing that has bothered me with Milwaukee – Stop telling me they're trying things, okay? Because for the fourth consecutive year, they are 29th in terms of opponent three-point shooting from beyond the arc. And a team like Brooklyn is going to destroy you in that area of the court. And so I always talk about sustainability, right? Is what you're seeing in these games sustainable over the course of a seven-game series? And Brooklyn shooting 40% from three is perfectly sustainable. They are a 40% three-point shooting team in the regular season, and they're taking on the second-worst perimeter defense in the league, that is something that's going to play out over a large sample size, over and over again. So you like, uh, buds. This is all at his feet, right? You're getting played by an ancient center who's got like one leg, and Blake Griffin. You have you can't figure out how to defend the Brooklyn Nets without one of their big three. And this is all directly on the shoulders of Buttonholder, and he and he can't figure it out for the life of him to switch defensively a little bit more. And I think that's ultimately going to lead to his downfall in the series, and he's going to lose his job because.
1: All right, on the Nets side of this, James Harden's health is a question mark. It's uh, pretty clear they can beat the Bucks without James Harden. Would they be able to beat the Sixers if they didn't have a healthy James Harden?
3: Yes. Yes, I think so. And look, I think you're seeing the flaws, Tyler McPhilly, in this series against Atlanta. Right? If you watch their half court offense, it's one of two things. It's gonna be like a half-ass pick-and-roll with Ben Simmons, who's really, like, he's a good finisher, but there's nothing much out of that, right? He's either going to try to finish at the hooper or, or kick it out, but there's no, like, stop with space and finish, right? We know he's got no jump shot whatsoever. Either that, or it's a post up for Joel Embiid, and you're going to like have Danny Green like sit there with his hands up, and hopefully he you know causes a double team. He's going to kick it out to Danny Green or somebody else. When they thrive, Philadelphia, it's when they're getting out in transition, forcing turnovers, turning defense into offense, right? All of those things. You're not going to get away with that against the Brooklyn. You're a solid defense. That's great. And Joel Embiid is probably going to eat them up and have like 30 and 10 games every single night. But at the end of the day. You have struggled as a team to guard above the break three point shots. You're 19th in that regard in opponent three point shooting. This is a Brooklyn team that thrives in that area of the floor again, as we talked about. And your offense is too simplistic. And I and I think too this might come as a shock, but there might be a coaching edge in favor of Steve Nash. Like with what Nash has done with like, Griffin at the five has been eye opening, and it's been really good. And Griffin deserves a lot of credit for it. But Nash implemented the switch-off style. Nash is rolling with Blake Griffin, has his small ball five, and it's working wonders. I think that Doc Rivers is at at a coaching disadvantage in that series too. So ultimately, it leads to a big series for Joel Embiid, but not a series victory for Philadelphia
0: in my mind. On the other side of the West, John, we haven't talked about the Phoenix Suns yet. And do you think in terms of sustainability, as you like to talk about, that DeAndre Ayton being an answer against Nikola Jokic is sustainable?
3: No, right? Like, Jokic is going to have a really good series. Like, he nearly averaged the triple-double against that team in the regular season. They were like 28-12-8, somewhere at that range, if my memory serves correct. Uh, he, he ate them up, and Aiton's going to have a lot of trouble. One of the three games that he found out in the regular season uh, was against Nikola Jokic. So, that's going to be a mismatch for him. The problem for Denver is that while Jokic is going to eat... He is not going to find any support outside of himself. And, you know, you can get away with that against Portland, right? Portland was 29th in overall defensive efficiency this year, one of the worst defensive ratings we've ever seen in NBA history, them and the Sacramento Kings this season. And you can do that and you can win series against a really bad defensive team like this, like Portland, I should say.
1: Uh, what but, do you. Oh, go ahead.
3: Oh, I'm sorry. I was uh, swallowing some spit. I apologize, Tyler. Um, <laughs> but when you look at it from the other side of things, like when you're talking about Phoenix. This is a top-ten defensive efficiency team. This is a team that along the perimeter has Mikhail Bridges, has a smart defender in Chris Paul, not a dynamic on-ball defender, but a smart one. And you have all the other pieces, you have Jay Crowder as well, to shut down the guys that are around Nikola Jokic. So this is going to be one of those series where it's like, go ahead, Nik, you can average 30, 10, and four assists, but that's the key number. You're only going to have four assists, and everybody else isn't going to do anything against us, and ultimately it leads to a series loss.
1: Uh, what is uh, more aggravating, Tom Thibodeau winning Coach of the Year, or Derrick Rose getting that one fan vote oh. for MVP?
3: So I, I learned, I did not know this. Shocking. I'm a senior NBA insider, and I didn't know this. Uh, apparently the fans get a vote <laughs> in MVP? Like, when did this start? So my point still stands. Take it away from the fans. Like, It's absolutely <laughs> ridiculous that Derrick Rose gets a first-place vote like, by anybody. Uh, but, right. Right, so Tyler, huh?
1: Jared's just yelling in the background. You can ignore him.
3: So I thought that was Adam. Uh, Adam's just uh, such high energy. I figured that was him, as usual. <laughs> Absolutely. Got to calm him down. Um, but no, I think, you know, so you ever had one of those moments where, like, something happens and you're like, that's not that bad? And then you think more and more about it and you just get more and more angry. You're like, no, wait a minute. That's how I felt about Tibbs winning coach of the year. Like, on the surface, I'm like, oh, well, whatever. He wins it. So what? And then I think more and I'm like, no, hold on. If he's the head coach of the Charlotte Hornets, he's not winning this stupid award. Monty Williams has been absolutely fantastic. The Suns won the second seed in the better conference, and if I told you, hey, a coach is going to win coach of the year, even though his team is going to finish fourth in the lesser eastern conference, and he's going to have the 24th best offense in the league, he's still the best coach of the year. Like, No, it's ridiculous, <laughs> but a whole bunch of writers are like, oh, it's a Mika, it's back, Penn Station, it's such a great spot. Let's just vote for this guy. Like, it's It's ridiculous. He should not have won the award, and I get more angry the more I think about it.
0: I absolutely love the fact that somehow Penn Station made it into that. <laughs> like, like the, like the writers were like, "Yeah, I love where I get off the subway to cover this game." Tom Thibodeau for Coach of the Year. The Kmart, the Kmart is amazing. It's, it's essentially what they're doing. Like, Tom, this is garden. This is great.
3: If he's playing at Ball Arena, right, for the Denver Nuggets, do we care? Like, no. Nobody's like, "Bring back the ball, baby." Like, no. Everybody's <laughs> like, "It's the mecca. It's the garden. There's no spot like this." Tom Thibodeau's great. Sure, he lost in five games to at the Atlanta Hawks, but still, this is a great coaching job. It's not like he—it's he, in a lesser conference. They don't sniff the postseason if they're in the West. I thought it was ridiculous. Oh,
1: that was good. He's Jonathan Von Tob. You can hear him on VSEN. You can hear him sometimes on Cofield and Company right here as well. Thanks, John. We appreciate it. Thanks for the time, guys. Oh, I like that. I like I like people getting angry about awards because I generally don't care too much, but I enjoy that very much. You know. Uh,
0: I'm not going to argue with Tom Thibodeau getting coach of the year because he's my coach of the year because he let me watch <laughs> playoff games. Uh, but, you know, the Suns had no expectations and might end up in the Western Conference Finals. Yeah, I, I see where he's coming
1: from. All right, coming up next, Adam and I have shared in one of the greatest cheaters in baseball history.
0: Our stats hogwash? Are you tired of hearing Tyler do math
3: on the radio? Tweet at Bischoff underscore Tyler and at Ed Graney. And Correa hits it in the air pretty deep down the left field line. Ball is hooking,
0: and that ball is foul. Or is it? No, it's a home
1: run. It was just fair. Perfectly legal home run by Carlos Correa. But Major League Baseball. Oh, I am very fascinated to see what happens over the next month or so in pitchers and foreign substances because Major League Baseball uh, well, they actually said it before the season, but now they seem to be for real and saying they're going to start cracking down on foreign substances that pitchers use and apply to the baseball. Yesterday, Garrett Cole talked to the media, and this is pretty great sound because he was asked directly if he's used spider tack, which is a specific thing pitchers use to get uh, that they apply to baseballs. Here's the interaction.
2: And have you ever used spider tack while pitching? Um, I don't. I don't know. I, I don't know if, uh, I don't know quite, I don't quite know how to answer that to be honest. Um, I mean, there are customs and practices that have been passed down from older players to younger players from the last generation of players to this generation of players. And, um, you know, I, I think, uh, I think there are some things that are certainly out of bounds in that regard, and and uh, I've stood pretty stood pretty firm in, in terms of that, uh, in terms of the communication between our peers and whatnot, um, you know. And and I again, like I mentioned earlier, there's you know this is important to a lot of people that love the game, and this is including including the players in this room, including fans, including you know teams. And so if MLB wants to you know legislate some more stuff. That's a conversation that we can have um, because ultimately we should all be pulling in the same direction on us.
1: Adam, could Garrett Cole have answered that question any worse?
0: All right. He should have had a better answer than that prepared <laughs> without question. <laughs> the other thing that we have to take out of that though, is that Garrett Cole was trying very hard not to lie. Right. Yeah. And, I'm going to give him credit for that. I'm going to give him credit for not just coming right out and saying, oh, no, of course not. Because, yeah, clearly by his answer
1: he has, but I'm not really sure that separates him from other pitchers that have, I mean, his answer was basically to throw every other pitcher that's ever pitched under the bus too, by not only saying that he talks to his peers about what is and what is not acceptable, even though it's all against the rules, but also that it was passed down from older players to younger players to the current group of players. Like he took every pitcher that's ever pitched in major league baseball and said, yeah, they've all done it.
0: So let me read directly to you from the uh, Steph Epstein article in sports illustrated from last week. That talks all about the problem throughout the game that goes well beyond Garrett Cole or any one franchise when it comes to, quote, the sticky stuff. Over the past two or three years, pitchers illegal application of the ball of what they call sticky stuff at first sunscreen, rosin, now various forms of glue has become so pervasive that one recently retired hurler estimates 80 to 90 percent of pitchers are using it in some capacity. So Garrett Cole is someone who I think can be made a very appealing poster boy for this because he goes from the Pittsburgh Pirates where he had been, let's say, underachieving uh, for a guy drafted as highly as Garrett Cole had been, goes to the Houston Astros, becomes a superstar, gets the largest contract ever for a pitcher, and now uh, happens to pitch for the most prominent franchise in the game. So you can make a great case out of Garrett Cole. that being said this is a problem for the game to as garrett cole said legislate on some level
1: why does this not feel like as big of a deal as steroids
0: because no one is harming their bodies right in the end we look at steroids and we can see the effects we can visibly look at a jacked up mark mcguire or sammy sosa or barry bonds and say huh there aren't a lot of guys out there who have an eight and nine quarters head size, but somehow that happened to Barry Bonds. And so here we are looking at these hulked up gentlemen who have, you know, changed the entirety of the game. Well, it isn't that different The the game has been changed significantly. We're looking at a league wide batting average of 236. <laughs> Nobody wants to watch 236 but you can't look at the pitchers and see anything, right? You can't look and see that the pitchers are any different, and it also does relate to something that has been done for a long time. We all got very used to the idea of Gaylord Perry throwing the spitball and then, you know, Bronson Arroyo having, what, maybe an entire can of SPF 100 on his arm? (laughs) Like, we got very comfortable with that idea, and now it's advanced to the point where everyone throughout the game is saying, hold up, hold up. This has actually screwed the product.
1: I am fascinated to see how Major League Baseball actually handles this. Joe West yesterday had a quote about they want to be consistent so they don't look like they're targeting players. But I'm I'm fascinated to see how exactly Major League Baseball handles this. And do players actually get suspended or do enough of them say, okay, I'm taking this seriously. And whatever I've been using, I'm not using anymore. I just... It's a weird spot because it's been against the rules for a long time, but they haven't enforced it now all of a sudden in the middle of a season. Hey, let's enforce these rules.
0: There have been some lower spin rates this week. <laughs> not saying correlation is causation, but that's out there. And the other thing is, if Major League Baseball thinks that having Joe West, maybe the most hated <laughs> umpire not named Angel Hernandez, out front of this thing, that would just be peak Manfred. Oh.
1: Joe West is the face of uh, justice in Major League Baseball. He is going to bring us back to the good times, the times when baseball was pure and nobody was cheating.
0: He's going to make baseball great again.